As an investor funding something, you have this core question of like, why now? You as the founder have to be able to answer that, you know, again, objectively, not because you're in love with it, not because you're pitching it, but would you put your life savings into this company? That's Jody, the founder of Productive. They've raised over $70 million. Before this, he built and led the team at Google Analytics. I've been shifting these interviews from just simple fundraising tactics to how you hit product market fit and how you get to conviction as a, as a founder because of what he just said. Listen to how he did customer discovery interviews to get to that point. The key insight talking to all these CIOs, doing it in a devil's advocate almost way, sort of the anti-sell of like asking what the big pain points were and then challenging, why haven't you been able to solve it? You're in a position, you know, of your stature in an organization, you have budget, you have people. Is it a prioritization question? Is it a desire question? And what you're really looking for and listening for is them coming back and saying to you, I want to solve this problem. I've tried to solve this problem. I've been unsuccessful at solving it. And they can be articulate on why not. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Adam O'Donnell and I'm I'm on a mission to help founders do the two things that I never did well when I was a founder. Hit product market fit that's sustainable and raise from top VCs. My approach is simple. I just go talk to founders that have done it before and VCs that are actively investing. If you don't get one tactic or strategy, send me an email. Adam F. O'Donnell at gmail.com. You're the founder of Productive, but can you first tell for anyone who doesn't know what, what are you working on? There are a ton of SaaS applications in every one of these organizations. And the flip side of the, of the product-led growth, the PLG motion, is that everybody in a company these days is evaluating software, is trying things, is buying things. And so what's happened over these recent years is you now have a situation where, on average, companies have just under 400 SaaS applications in the organization. Some of our customers have thousands of applications. And it becomes really, really hard to understand not only what do we have, what are we spending money on? What are we actually using? Who's using it? We bring a tremendous amount of data, plus all the workflows that those data goes into of renewing software, purchasing software, all these kinds of things to make it that much better in terms of what should our software portfolio be? What do we want to have? And how do we basically tame all the chaos that otherwise is existing with, again, these hundreds of applications? And there's just more on a constant basis every month coming into the organization. You obviously understand the pain incredibly well. Uh, but what made you, when did you first get the idea? So I was at Google for about nine years before starting Productive. I used to lead Google Analytics, uh, built the uh, Google Analytics enterprise business from earliest days into you know, being a, just a massive global business. And and the kind of the couple of things that are relevant here, one is that in the realm of marketing, which is what Google Analytics caters to, the transformation of just how marketing teams operate in recent years is just can't be understated. So much more data, so much understanding of the customer experience, the customer journey. When I left Google, I was really looking for something big. And um, my encouragement to, to a lot of founders um, is always, you're going to work really hard at whatever it is you're going to do. Go work on something big and worthwhile. You know, the biggest opportunity cost is actually, you know, your time, your career, all of your energies. And, you know, I think Silicon Valley, Bay Area, I mean, so much innovation, so many like incredible ideas. And, you know, just, you know, the conversations you'll hear people having at a party or, you know, you know even just, you know, on a, on a Caltrain or something, fascinating. Not all these ideas are gonna be big companies. Some of them are gonna be features or some of them are something really interesting. But then, you know, whoever owns that market is just going to go you know, implement it. And so I really took an approach and I encourage other founders to do this as well, which is which is like you got to think like an investor, like take yourself out of the excitement about the technology for a moment and really think about, is this a big enough market? Why hasn't this been solved already? Like, has something changed in the in the market? Has something changed in the customer need? Is there a new technology that's at play? But like as an investor funding something, you have this core question of like, why now? 
you as the founder have to be able to answer that, you know, again, objectively, not because you're in love with it, not because you're pitching it, but like, would you fund your own company doing this? Would you put your life savings into this into this company? Would you put your entire salary for the next few years into it? And you have to believe the answer is yes, because it's worthwhile. It's going to turn to something. And for all that work, that's going to turn to something meaningful. So I went through a process of really looking at a number of different ideas, thinking about it, a lot of stuff, talking to a lot of smart people. I looked at a number of different ideas. Some of the ideas that I didn't pursue have gone on to become, you know, other people started those companies and, you know, and it's like, I'm, I'm happy as a customer of them that they exist. For productive, the key insight was, talking to all these CIOs, CFOs, doing, you know, just due diligence. And frankly, sometimes doing it in, in a devil's advocate almost way of like, sort of the anti-sell of like asking what the big pain points were and then challenging, like, why haven't you been able to solve it? You're in a position, you know, of, of you know, stature in an organization, you have budget, you have people. Is it a prioritization question? Is it a desire question? And what you're really looking for and listening for is them coming back and saying to you, I want to solve this problem. I've tried to solve this problem. I've been unsuccessful at solving it, and they can be articulate on why not. And you need to hear these sort of same themes again and again and again. So you're not over-indexed on one particular organization's nuances or, you know, two or three, but like, you know, when you start hearing the same thing 10, 20, 30 times, right? Okay, thematically. What's a bad reason for that they haven't been able to solve it yet? Um, bad reason just being like, it's, you know, it's, it's actually not that important. <laughs> um, so it's sort of like it's a it's a it's a wish list, right? I, you know, I, I would love to, um, and we haven't solved it because we haven't prioritized it. Well, then why are they going to prioritize buying it from you? Um, why, and, and I'm just buying. Why are they going to prioritize, you know, implementing it, adopting it, all these kinds of things? So, you know, that's interesting. Can I can I challenge that? Because I wonder is there is there ever an opportunity if you lower the the bar for them to just execute on it? So maybe just the fact that they're mentioning it says there's something there even though it's not a huge pain like how would you judge you know even like i think of grammarly like as an example of like that might not have been the number one thing on a lot of people's radar in terms of like being able to have like that they're actively trying to solve in a business but yet so many businesses are making sure their people write better emails so i'm yeah. just curious like how you frame how you weighed that well the the distinction i would make would be we haven't solved it meaning we like the, the, you could think of as two variations there one is we haven't gone out and purchased something so you know, let's take the Grammarly example you just had. It could be we do care about you know quality of our writing, quality of our emails and all that. We just haven't prioritized purchasing a tool for it either because you know maybe it's not that important to us you know from a central standpoint versus a certain function. Whereas to make the distinction of places where companies haven't either haven't solved it by buying something or they haven't solved it by building something internally. And oftentimes, before you go buy something, there's some rudimentary version internally, right? We solved it with, you know, some spreadsheets, maybe, you know, a little bit of automation and whatnot. And so when when you hear them saying there's a pain point, but we're not really trying that hard to solve it, that's an indicator of it's not that big of a problem. Conversely, we have been trying to solve it. It's not working. It's expensive, not just um, not just like from a from a you know tool standpoint, it's like it's expensive time-wise for us. And like you start to really dial in on this pain point. And so in the productive scenario, you'd hear three key themes over and over and over, um, different words, but the themes were, and this is now going back, um, productive is uh, about to celebrate its sixth birthday. So it's kind of, uh, it's been an amazing journey, but even then, and you still hear today, same three themes. One, we're just spending more and more and more on software. So year over year, software spend, SaaS spend is going up and up and up and up and up. 
media question, right, as it goes from being rounding error to something material, is the CFO is asking, why are we spending so much more money on software? Where's all this money going to? And they start to drill down and they say, you know, how come we spent, you know, X dollars with a particular software vendor last year, and now we're spending 2X this year, but we didn't grow by 2X. I don't understand how prices jumped up, right? So CFO is asking questions now, where is all this money going to? Second theme, was we just have more and more and more applications. It's not just that our existing vendors are charging us more, it's that you know we had 20 SaaS applications, then we had 50, then we had 100, then we had 200. And I thought we only had 200, but once we started going and really doing the auditing and looking at what people were expensing, we started looking at our network security systems, we're like, it's not 200, it's actually 500. We just didn't know about the other 300. So spending more and more, I have more and more applications. And the third theme was more and more software um, was being purchased outside of IT. So, you know, previous era, IT software procurement uh, was all being done by the IT organization. Right? They were the gatekeepers to evaluate something, to purchase it, to implement it, to deploy it, to schedule all those kinds of things. And now everybody in the organization is trying things, buying things, purchasing things, right? Credit cards are getting swiped, purchase orders are just getting directly cut from the organization. So more and more of it was happening sort of outside of the governance, outside of the processes. These days, the majority of software purchasing is actually happening outside of these centralized areas, which was leading to this tremendous pain point of, I can't answer questions about what are we spending on? I don't know what we're actually using. I don't know who's using it. I don't know why we have some of these kinds of things. We're renewing things, we're buying new things, yeah. and we're trying to solve this with a spreadsheet that's being manually populated, right? You may have seen this at, at Zendesk, certainly yeah. plenty of people have, of like, a, you know, an email goes out to everybody, please self-report, what have you purchased? What did you buy? You know, you know why? And there's real questions there, including things like, you know, we have a LinkedIn sales navigator, you know, we have that like as an enterprise kind of thing, it's integrated their Salesforce. Why are you expensing it on your own, right? So like this self-reporting, and even when you go through these heavy lift exercises, at the end of it, you're still like, well, that was yesterday's data, right? Everything's yeah. still changing. So, so really just going and listening to the pain points, yeah, looking in and looking for repeated themes that they want to solve it, they haven't been able to, but they would like to. That's oh, that's that's so good. And, and like, I'm sure hindsight's 2020, you, you, you can look back and like see these amazing themes, but I'm curious, just like tactically, how many people, how many CFOs or CIOs did you talk to until you noticed this pattern? Like, did you have to get to a hundred or was it only 10? No, it was, it was, it was actually, um, it's, it, it's interesting in, in, uh, uh, in this scenario, even within the first, let's say dozen conversations, the themes were super clear wow. and, um, which in, in, in my situation was a really good thing. What's, what, the, what's dangerous is like talk to 10 people. I hear sort of 10 different, I hear 10 different things. I'm not sure three of them said, said thematically, you better keep going. You better get to 20 to 30. You need to get to a point where like. You almost can complete the sentences of what you know these interview interviewees are going to say. Absolutely. We found that pretty pretty early, pretty quickly. Still talk to more people to just further confirm. But at some point, you're like, okay, there's clearly something pretty significant here. It, it was yeah, that that's that's very interesting because I, I when I was doing research um, with the company, it, it was it was very scattered. I was doing it in the customer success space. This is like back in 2017, uh, in like competing with like a gain site, and I just we had so many things across the board and it, it was so frustrating we ended up shutting it down after 600 discovery interviews over 13 months but um I, like the difference from what i'm hearing you now is like just the clarity but i'm curious what was the framing of the question 
when you said, hey, can you meet? Was it, I'm working on X, so you kind of funneled the conversation or was it just like, hey, I just want to hear your problems? So it, it, it varies. I, th I think in, I think in the early days of those conversations, you're asking a far more open-ended question, um, both to elicit sort of a truly organic response, but but because um, you don't want to bias them. And and generally, people, you know, uh, even somebody you don't know who, who's taking one of these interviews, still kind of wants to tell you what you want to hear. And so it becomes very easy to have those happy years, right? And so by just starting off like far more open-ended, like. Um, you know, asking questions around like, what are, you know, like, what are some of the big themes that you're thinking about, you know, next year? What are some of the big areas of focus? Um, and if they're not giving you kind of like the right latitude or, you know, or, or depth of the answers, you can kind of up level it. Like, you know, from a CEO standpoint, what are the things you're hearing from the CEO that are like really important? Um, and, you know, in those conversations, we'll get going. And sometimes they'll tell you things that are completely unrelated to what you're doing. And it's like, okay could be evidence that I'm working on, you know, that like what I'm working on is interesting, but it's their number 11 priority and they're just never going to get beyond number five. In other situations, you're like, they're going, they're happy and excited to go deep on problem number two and yours is problem number three. As you start getting, you know, learning more and more about this, you start getting some of those later interviews where you can go in and you can be, you know, a little bit more opinionated, right? You can still ask the question and say, you know, you, know, you start asking questions like, hey, you know, some of the other conversations we're having, you know, I was talking to some other CFOs or, um, uh, uh, you know, one way or another, you're sort of introducing some social proof that's yeah. combined with your own opinion. And you're asking questions like, you know, well, how, you know, how do you guys think about this? Or, you know, how, you know, how have you tackled it? And it's sort of now it's getting a little bit more directed. And then oftentimes people um, want to understand, like, are you coming to me, you know, purely open, open-ended, like, you know, you're looking just for what do I think? Or are you looking for feedback? Even in the feedback ones, you can tell them, I will share this with you. I'll share with you what I'm doing, but I want to get some of your thoughts up front and, and mm -hmm. people will be super helpful. Maybe the something I haven't said that I think is pretty important is that at the end of the day, like these things are all about people and relationships. And if you enter that conversation, you know, with with good intent and good heart and like you you are genuinely trying to be helpful to them, like that you are you are really with empathy, listening to the pain point that they have. Um, you can relate to it. If you don't understand it, you're asking more questions. People just wind up being incredibly helpful. And then, you know, that's, a, that's the beginning of, of, of a, you know, of a relationship. And so even at the end of this discovery call, just being able to say, you know, like, Hey, you know, I would love to share with you some of the stuff we're working on as we get a little bit further. Would you be interested? And they'll tell you like, absolutely. Or in some cases what we found was people were so eager that they're like, I really actually want to see you know this next level things or in some cases they thought that we were there selling and pitching and you'd have to kind of say like no no, no like this doesn't exist yet um this is this is a concept this is an idea so just leading with the really want to understand the problem i would love to help with the problem um and you know and and, and i'm here to create value people wind up being so helpful in their answers um even their offers oh you know you should talk to so-and-so let me introduce you and I just think like just just being genuine um, and, and authentic goes a long way. Ah, that's that's so good. Well, can you tell us maybe how long you were in this discovery interview before you had a demo process? Yeah, so so our story is a little bit uh, is is well, I should say a little bit different, but probably a lot different in that um, I, w I mentioned those being very thoughtful about which which space I'm going to go after, which which problem. Um, 
Uh, I think there's also questions from like a fundraising standpoint of like which investors do you want to work with and all those kinds of things. So I was having a lot of conversations concurrently. Things wound up gelling actually, uh, I would say atypically quickly. Um, I'll kind of jump forward and I'm happy to talk more, but we wound up raising a series A from uh, Excel Partners. So Steve Laughlin is the uh, the former uh, founder and CEO of a company called Relate IQ, very successful exit to, to Salesforce, uh, an incredible, um, just incredible operator, incredible human being, incredible leader, incredible investor these days. And so there was just this very, very strong alignment around I think we can go do something really big together. And there's a lot of trust that was already in play there. So the idea for the company was was forming, greater fidelity forming. Steve was excited about it. We were excited about it. Um, doing a bunch of this due diligence, uh, him even helping with some introductions to people that we could, you know, could, should go talk with. And so it sort of went in a relatively short period of time of talking with a bunch of people, hearing thematically, same things over and over. Um, at the same time, me doing my own um, again, due diligence, right? Like, am I going to go invest in this thing? And asking all the counter questions, you know, well, what's the competitive landscape? You know, all these kinds of things and saying, there's something here because if there was a, if there was a credible competitor, if there was a credible alternative, the market would have already self-organized around it and they hadn't. And so that kind of became the impetus for like, I think there's something big here. Let's go for it. Oh, that's, that's so good. I, I appreciate you sharing. And I, I know for this interview, we spent a lot of time on just like the way you did the discovery interviews. Cause I, I did imagine that your funding journey was different because of the experience that you had. Um, and I'm, I'm sure. So I, I don't think that the average founder is going to be able to learn as much from like the tactics on how you closed your round. If there's anything else there, let me know. But is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, yes, I think it's fair to say. I, I do help a number of other founders on their fundraising. Um, and so I have a lot of, a bunch of experience with um, uh, with that process. But in the in the story of Productive, we jumped straight to a Series A and with just like very, very strong shared conviction. And um, it's been a phenomenal just kind of way to begin the journey. That's amazing to get to that conviction. What did the MVP look like? Like how how raw was it? Maybe how many months did you work on it? Yeah. So we, um, uh, I'm just trying to think back here. So in you know in these kind of early days, um, uh, and 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 way that actually kind of the company came together was doing some of this due diligence. Um, we did not start building product until after funding had occurred, um, but. Part of the due diligence was people sharing their data with us. So, meaning you go have these discovery conversations, and people would explain, "Oh, I have this crazy spreadsheet," and you know, put all the stuff in there, and then they would say, "I'll, I'll give you a copy of the spreadsheet," um, you know, or I'll, or I will walk you through how we do some of these kinds of things. And that was really powerful in terms of understanding what. So like, what is the data model going to need to look like? And where are the hard parts in all this? And where are the simpler parts? And um, in, you know, part of part of the special sauce that we do is we bring data in from a variety of different systems. So we go hook in directly to the SaaS application. So we're going to connect into your Zoom, your Salesforce, your Box, your, you know, your Microsoft Office, all these various tools. We're connecting into the financial systems. So, you know, your Oracle financials or Workday financials. We're hooking into identity systems, security systems. So like all this data is going to come in, has to be normalized, joined all together so that we can do all the magic we do. And so we're sort of like, okay, I understand what a very manual way of populating this spreadsheet looks like. 
um, which then could let us go do a lot of technical due diligence of like, okay, is there a way that we could get this stuff in automatically? Is the data clean? Is it a consistent data model? And the answer is like, no, 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 no. Ah, opportunity to go deploy a lot of the technical experience of like, here's how we're going to do all of it. So, not as much of an MVP or or prototype, you know, pre-funding. It was all the all that data, all that information was critical in terms of the shared excitement of like, let's go do something big and let's go, you know, let's go aggressively uh, after it. Is there one last piece parting advice around a founder who's beginning this product market fit journey? The chemistry, the partnership with the investor i think is is underrated and uh and i think there could be a pervasive view that sort of you know capital is capital investor is investor or even you know the the uh you know an over-reliance on a particular you know you know if i could just have you know a top tier vc on my you know on my cap table on my marketing I would, everything would be great um that certainly is great don't get me wrong right but it's the actual board member it's the actual person that you're going to wind up partnering with matters a lot. Um, so, um, so be thoughtful, be selective. As much as the investors are evaluating you, you've got to evaluate them, right? Do they get my space? Do they care about this? Are they, you know, are they themselves adding value? Even, you know, like every time you're talking with them, are you getting smarter? Do they challenge some of your thinking, right? Because you're going to wind up working with them for the lifetime of the company and uh, sometimes founders get, you know, too uh, too excited about the brand name of the firm. Sometimes get too excited about all I want to do is I want to minimize dilution, right? There's a number of criteria that can be a play there. I think none of this. I think it it both makes sense, but it doesn't matter. What matters is, am I partnering with the right individual? You know, which starts the foundation is the first investor putting money in the company. So when you go to raise the next round, you're adding somebody else to to the company. But is that first person going to help you get the company strong enough in a great position when you go to fundraise? Are they actually helping with that to now add the second person, right? To then add the third person, mm-hmm. and um, and so like this aspect of like, does your investor really understand your space? Are they you know are they as excited about the space the company as you are? Um, are they the kind of person who's going to put in the work? Because again, the the work begins at the time you know that the that the you know the investment is finalized. It's more than just board meetings, um, right? Are you talking to them on a regular basis? Do you have that level of trust? You can just go and be vulnerable and say like, I'm scared. I don't know how to solve this problem. And they say, Let me either help you. Let me connect you with people. Kind of a thing. So. My advice would be yes, you know, like your pitch matters. You know, yes, like picking the right problem space matters and all that. But picking the right investor um, can really make a massive difference in the company. And you know, spend the time not just when you're fundraising, get to know these people, you know, well in advance of when you might need to even work with them. But these relationships and the people is what everything is built on. Cody, thank you so much for coming on the show. Your story is inspiring. We're all part of one one big community and. Um, I've certainly received a lot of help in, uh, in my career and my startup journey, and I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. And I think we all owe it to other folks in the community to to give back and and help. So, um, so I'm I'm really grateful that I could uh, that I could join you. And uh, if people are you know looking for you know help or advice or just want to bounce something off, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You made it to the end. That's more than I can say for a lot of podcasts that I listen to. Hopefully, it was helpful. If I can improve it, once again, send me an email: Adam F O'Donnell at Gmail dot com.